0: Revelation chapter 9, continuing our study in the book of Revelation. This is God's holy word. Pay close attention. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit, and he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. In those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. "'The shape of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. "'On their heads were crowns of something like gold "'and their faces were like the faces of men. "'They had hair like women's hair "'and their teeth were like lion's teeth. "'And they had breastplates like breastplates of iron "'and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots "'with many horses running into battle. "'They had tails like scorpions "'and there were stings in their tails. "'Their power was to hurt men five months.' And they had as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek he has the name Apollyon. One woe is past. Behold, still two more woes are coming after these things. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we ask you today that you would guide us by your Holy Spirit into truth. That's what we seek. We need to hear truth and we need to know what you are communicating by your word to us. So make me a capable messenger of these things. Help me to articulate it clearly. Deliver us from all error. Deliver us from all distraction, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, people of God, this coming Saturday is the 503rd anniversary of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation when on October 31st, 1517, a young small town monk named Martin Luther nailed his 35 theses, his 35 complaints against the Roman Catholic Church and the papacy and the practices of indulgences. He nailed his complaints, his dispute, to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. And today is the Sunday we observe and remember the beginning of the Reformation, and we give thanks to God for the necessary corrections of the Reformation, what it brought to the church, and the theology, and the life that the Protestant Reformation produced. We're thankful for, and we stand indebted to, Martin Luther and John Calvin and John Knox and others who brought the church out of superstition and idolatry, who brought the gospel and the scriptures back into the language of the common man and restored worship to the worshiper, who restored the Lord's supper, the Lord's table to the worshiper. We give thanks for all of these things. But Luther didn't pick the date October 31st in order to give churches an alternative celebration to Halloween 500 years into the future. He picked that day deliberately, he picked October 31st because it was All Hallows' Eve, it was All Saints' Eve, and he knew that there would be a crowd at the church the very next day for the celebration of All Saints' Day, November 1st, November 1st on the church calendar is All Saints' Day, the day where the church for centuries celebrate uh, has celebrated the lives and the victory of all the saints of all the ages, who are worshiping around the throne of Jesus, just like we sang just a moment ago. This feast day, All Saints Day, goes all the way back to the 300s. And at least by the 700s, it was established on the date where we celebrate it today because there are so many martyrs and so many apostles and so many saints and lives of those that we're thankful for, we run out of days on the calendar to celebrate. So we have one day, we have one day, All Saints Day. Just like when I was a kid, we had George Washington Day and we had Abraham Lincoln Day and now we just have President's Day. It's all conglomerated. It's all together. Uh, we're thankful for all the presidents, or some of them at least. And we, we <laughs> give thanks for them on that day. Well, All Saints Day is a celebration of the life of all the saints. We'll have a big feast next, next Lord's Day for this. But the day before the feast day is the eve. Like Christmas has Christmas Eve, the day before the feast day. And so the day before All Saints Day is All Saints' Eve, or All Hallows' Eve, or as we've contracted it today, Halloween. And this day took on its own emphases in the life and the celebration of the church. The Feast of All Saints Day, the Feast of All Saints, reminds us that Jesus has finished his work, and the saints who rest with, them have, uh, uh, with him have finished their work as well. But you and I still have work to do. We're still fighting. We're still in a battle between uh, the the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. We're still warring against the kingdom of Satan. We still make war against the demonic hegemony of ignorance and fear and superstition. So on the day before All Saints, on the eve, feasts start on the evening before. On the day before All Saints, we remember that we still have work to do. And we remember our ongoing battle with Satan. And one means by which Satan is defeated is mockery. Satan is prideful, and prideful beings cannot laugh at themselves. But we do. We laugh at him, and we remind him that his power is broken, and we remind him that his head is being crushed. And one way that children used to do this on All Saints' Eve is to dress up like mockeries of Satan and his minions. Children don't do that anymore. They dress up like superheroes and princesses and and other things. But the tradition of dressing up like imps and and ogres has a Christian origin. It doesn't have its origin in Druidism, if that was even a thing. If it actually, if there ever actually was anything, I think that was a, a later um, recreation, or um, that that was not a uh, that was not a, a pagan uh, tradition that was a christian tradition to mock satan and his minions to make fun of them satan doesn't really look like the comic version that you see of him and you think of him that's that 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 horns and a tail in the pit, that's a mockery that's a cartoon that's intended to make fun of him and to bring him down and to uh, and to insult him gargoyles in ancient church architecture aren't intended to be artistic representation of demons. They are the symbols of the church's ridicule of the enemy. They stick out their tongue and they make faces at the enemy. But in popular culture, we've mixed this all up and we equate these all of these things with that's the way the devil really looks and that's what dem- demons look like. And we've culturally forgotten the point of, of any of this. And therefore, today, just as we have to constantly correct our view of angels, uh, angels don 't look anything like their artistic representation, so uh, so are our uh, popular depictions of of demons. The, the book of revelation so far in our study has provided really good descriptions of angels, and now, in the fifth trumpet, we get some data on demons. As the fifth trumpet blows, the abyss is opened and out of it comes a swarm of demons who are allowed to devour like locusts and sting like scorpions and take up residence on the land for five months on the land. Remember, we're always talking about the land of Israel. This is the, the, the land of God's promise, and now it's the land that's under the curse. And just as Martin Luther, because this is Reformation Day, I'm going to make a few references to Martin Luther. I think you'll uh, excuse me, and you'll allow me to do that. But just as Martin Luther battled Satan throughout his life, and Martin Luther would would uh, verbally uh, uh, rebuke him because he understood the devil spoke through and worked through his enemies as as Luther faithfully rebuked Satan. So we're reminded today about the reality of evil spirits and their work and the extent of their work and also their limitations as we study the fifth trumpet of Revelation today. Remember where we are in the book. Quick catch up. John has been taken up into the throne room of God to get some heavenly perspective on events which are taking place shortly. That's the context, the the timeline of Revelation from John's perspective are these are things which must shortly take place. Jesus says repeatedly, I'm coming quickly, I'm coming quickly. These things happen within the generation that heard these things. And now uh, in the midst of the heavenly worship of the lamb, Jesus ascends and he takes a hold of a book which is sealed up. This is what John sees. The book that Jesus takes is a pronouncement of judgment on covenant-breaking Israel. And as the seals of the book, the book has seven seals, and as the seals are broken, judgment falls on the land of Israel. Again, these events, as we read them, they take place shortly shortly from John's perspective. And these events match up historically to what was going on between the resurrection of Jesus, the day of Pentecost, and the destruction of the old world with the final collapse of the temple and Jerusalem in 70 AD. That's the historical context of these things. And so it finally, at the end of the temple and the city, the, the, the old covenant, the world of the old covenant has been brought to an end. It's been wrapped up. So the seals of the book are open And there's silence in heaven. The choir stops singing so that now the uh, angels with trumpets can herald out the contents of the book. As trumpets blow, coals from the heavenly altar of incense are thrown to the land of Israel. And we read about plagues in the first four trumpets, similar to the plagues that fell on Egypt, which all reveal, all these plagues, all these judgments reveal what is already true of the land of Israel. The land is wet with the blood of martyrs. The temple has not been a blessing to the nations, but it's been a curse. The water that flows out of the sanctuary is not healing. It's not refreshing water. It's poisonous. It's polluted. And all the leaders failed to shine as lights. They're all fallen stars and they're all blackened suns. I also pointed out last week that the seven trumpets here mirror the seven days of creation in some ways, and here as these seven trumpets sound. We're watching the decreation of the old world, and, and now the emergence of the new world is everything is now positioned and repositioned around Christ. If you think back to the week of creation, the last three days of creation are all attended with God's blessings uh God uh built and formed and fashioned the earth, and then the last three days of creation He fills it, and He blesses it, so He creates swarms of birds and 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 um schools of fish things that things that swarm, and then He blesses them and says, "Be fruitful and multiply." so the last three days are blessings in the creation week. The last three trumpets are curses. The last three trumpets are woes. Woe, woe, woe are the are the are, is the call of the angel who flies over these last three last three judgments. And and so now these curses are falling on Israel. The the fifth trumpet matches the fifth day. So on the fifth day of creation, God made swarms of living creatures that inhabit the sky and the water. And now on the fifth trumpet of decreation, we see swarms of flying creatures like locusts. And we'll work through this one or two verses at a time, and we'll, we'll work to understand this today. So back to uh, chapter 9, verse 1, if you're following along. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit." the star already has fallen. This is past tense. He has fallen. It might be the same star that fell to poison the waters at the third trumpet, but there's no question that Satan is this falling star. He doesn't descend gracefully. He falls. It indicates he's been evicted. He's been kicked out. He's been sent out. He's been he's been thrown to the earth. Uh, back in Job, we see that in some way, Satan once had access to the throne room of God. Satan somehow had a personal access to talk to God, but Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah in chapter 14, prophesied that Satan would be cast out of the heavenlies. Here's what Isaiah said. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer? Light bringer is his name. Lucifer, son of the morning. How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? What is this? Oh, you're fallen from heaven. Oh, you're, you're cut down to the ground. This is, this is holy mockery. Of, of Lucifer. For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. This is Satan's pride. Look at all that I'm going to do. I'm going to be exalted. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit, and then Isaiah mocks him. They that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee and consider thee, saying, is this the man that made the earth to tremble that did shake the kingdoms? I just realized I cut and pasted that, and I, I cut and pasted the King James, which makes it even sound more foreboding, doesn't it? That, that it sounds like, it, and it is really this, this judgment on the pride of Satan and his, his eviction from the heavenlies. So, this defeat that Isaiah talks about, this defeat and mockery and destruction of Satan, begins with the coming of Jesus. And, and Jesus' victory over Satan in the wilderness at the temptation, and it progresses from there. When Jesus sends out 70 disciples in Luke 10 to heal and preach the gospel of the kingdom, remember the, the, uh, they, they come back after that missionary journey, and the, and the disciples say, even the d- devils are subject to us in, in your name. They're surprised at the power and the authority that they have over the evil spirits. And what does Jesus say? I beheld Satan, fall from heaven like lightning. I beheld Satan as lightning, fall from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions. Satan is a serpent. Here the demons are described like scorpions in the fifth trumpet. I give you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. So, Jesus is talking about this very same event that John sees in the fifth trumpet that that Satan is evicted from heaven, he falls, and out of that comes victory and deliverance uh, for the saints. The saints aren't hurt, Uh, the saints aren't damaged by Satan in his fall. So, we get this description of the fifth trumpet in Revelation. Satan has been evicted, and now to him is given the key to the abyss. He didn't have it in his pocket. He didn't have it on him. He doesn't own the key. Back in uh, Revelation 1.8, Jesus is said, I'm sorry, it's one eighteen. Jesus is revealed as the one who has the keys of hell and death. Jesus has the keys. He's got to give it to Satan for him to do anything with it. Satan can't go anywhere or do anything without permission. And Jesus has to allow him to have the key to open up the abyss, which says right off the bat, That Jesus is in charge of everything that happens here. Nothing happens outside of his control or his rule. Verse two, and he opened the bottomless pit and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Later in this book, we get more information about the lake of fire, but here we get a glimpse at the smoke that arises out of it. And as we, as we get this information about hell and the lake of fire and Satan and his horde, everything is a is inside out. Everything is backwards. Everything here is an antithesis of the courts of heaven. In heaven, there's an altar fire that glows and it radiates light and it represents the warmth of God's presence. There's smoke in the heavenly courts from the altar of incense. But what we get here is a counterfeit. This smoke it's smoke that obscures and darkens. There's, there's not a glory cloud of angels flapping their wings and singing and blowing trumpets. There's gonna be a very different cloud coming out of here. What comes out of it is a cloud of fallen angels, of unclean spirits, of demons. So As we read this, think of the inversion of what's going on here. We don't have a stairway to heaven. We've got a stairway to hell, and it's showing us the, um, the, the horrors of, of Satan and his minions. Verse three. Then out of the smoke, locusts came upon the earth and to them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. To them was given power. Their power is derived power. It's delegated power. They're given permission to do what they do. God allowed Satan to tempt Job, remember? Job had to ask permission, I'm sorry, um, Satan had to ask permission to tempt Job. Jesus told Peter, Satan has asked for you that he might sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you've returned to me, strengthen the brethren. Satan asked for and had to be permitted to tempt uh, Peter and Jesus allowed it. God allows Satan to operate for a time to test and to tempt, uh, to, to tempt. But but Satan is on a leash. Satan is limited by the sovereign rule of God. He's defeated, and he's allowed for a time to work mischief in the world, chiefly as a judgment against covenant-breaking men. But he's always on a leash. Luther described Satan as as God's uh, dog on a leash, on a chain. And that's exactly what he is. The demonic creatures that come out of the pit are described like locusts. When you think of locusts, biblically, you think of the plagues on Egypt. They also figure prominently in other texts of the Bible, like the book of Joel. The the prophet Joel describes a time in Israel's history where uh, these, these waves of locusts had come through the land and stripped everything bare. There were four waves of of locusts. They, they devoured every green thing on the land, a disaster like nobody had ever seen before. He said, it's like the garden of Eden in front of them and, and a desolate wilderness behind them. Joel said, now when there's nothing green, there's no food. There's no food for people. There's no food for animals. There's no grapes for wine and, and no bread and no wine means no worship, no weddings. So the brides weep, no parties, for for anyone. Everyone laments, there's nothing fun. There's nothing enjoyable. It's only starvation and suffering. And Joel describes these locust swarms as a judgment, as as the day of the Lord, which is a precursor to a greater day of the Lord, where a horde of Assyrian soldiers are going to come through and wipe out everything. So the bugs in Joel 1 are a precursor of the soldiers and, and and listen to how they're described. I'm going to just dip into Joel for just a minute because you'll hear some common language between Joel and Revelation. Joel 1, 5. "'Awake, you drunkards, and weep, "'and wail, all you drinkers of wine, "'because of the new wine, "'for it has been cut off from your mouth.'" For a nation has come up against my land, strong and without number. His teeth are like the teeth of a lion, and he has the fangs of a fierce lion. Well, that's exactly how these demons are described in Revelation 9. And he has laid waste my vine. He's ruined my fig tree. he's stripped it bare and thrown it away. Its branches are made white. Over in chapter 2, he starts out like this. Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of Yahweh is coming, for it is at hand. A day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Well, we just read about the smoke that comes out of the uh, out of the abyss like the morning clouds spread over the mountains a people come great and strong the like of whom has never been nor will there ever be such after them even for many successive generations a fire devours before them and behind them a flame burns the land is like the garden of eden before them and behind them a desolate wilderness surely nothing shall escape them their appearance is like the appearance of horses and like swift steeds so they run with the noise like chariots over mountaintops they Like the noise of a flaming fire that devours the stubble, like a strong people set in battle array. Joel mixes up the imagery of the locusts, and you don't know, are you talking about locusts here? Are you talking about the Assyrian army? Well, yes, because one is a precursor to the next, and both of them sound a whole lot like the army that's unleashed in Revelation chapter 9. A lot of the very same language. So because God writes history, he does this. The locusts point to the Assyrians, and the Assyrians point toward an even greater menacing threat, which is is this army of demonic locusts in Revelation chapter 9. The point of this exercise is to say, when you come across something in the Bible, and you're reading Revelation, and you come across something like locusts, you don't think black helicopters, you don't think rocket launchers, you know, you don't think Abrams tanks or whatever else people might have come up with in the 1980s to explain these things. Because I grew up on a steady diet of uh, uh, Hal Lindsey and Jerry Falwell interpreting these things this way. Uh, it's 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 put this particular bent in my mind and you still read it and you think, oh yeah, that's, I know what that is. No, you don't. Because you have to, you see locusts, what are locusts? Well, what does the Bible say? What function do they serve in the Bible? Well, in Joel, the locusts point to a greater army, a greater threat, which points to this. Let the Bible interpret the Bible. That's the point, and that's the point of this exercise. So you look at you look at locusts, you think, where else have I read, read about these? Um, these locusts in verse four have limits. Uh, they were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They can't touch the grass. They can't touch the trees. So these aren't literal locusts because that's all they would affect. Locusts only affect grass and trees, but these are sent to attack men, not plants. And some men are off limits. We, We established last week that symbolically speaking, The trees are the faithful. Think back to Psalm 1, right? The righteous are like trees. The saints are the trees who are sealed and protected by God as opposed to those who are not sealed. There's this difference here. Don't touch the trees, only touch the men who don't have the seal of God on their foreheads. Well, trees is put in parallel to men in the second half of that that verse. So What this says is the church, the faithful trees, the righteous are spared from this torment, though we saw last week previously some who were hanging around Jerusalem were affected in one of the previous trumpet judgments. Well, this is similar to the plagues that fell on Egypt. In the first three plagues, both the land of Egypt and the land of Goshen, where the Hebrews were camped. Both places had and felt the effects of the first three plagues, but after that there's a distinction made and the and the plagues and the torments only fall on the Egyptians after that while God's people are protected and so it is here that so now the the trees, the faithful are protected, those who are indwelled by the spirit of God can't be controlled by demons, can't be possessed by demons, so this war is waged on the apostates of old Israel. They're covenant breakers. And you might think, well, why would they torture them? They're on their side. Uh, Evil men and covenant breakers and apostates, they're they're Satan's allies. Why Why would they torment them? Well, they're not allies such that Satan is sympathetic to them. He or or that he won't attack them. They're not they're not his friends, they're his tools, they're his fools. He makes war on everyone. Uh he can attack because he loves disorder and he hates the image of God above all things. So he'll even attack and destroy the wicked because they're in the image of God. But the church here is spared. There are limits on the focus of the scorpions. Verse or or the or the locusts, which are also described as scorpions. Verse 5. And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. In those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. So even with regard to the apostates whom they are sent to afflict, even with regard to them, their power is limited. They can't kill. They can only torment. Nothing they do is fatal. Their sting is like the sting of a scorpion, which is not fatal, it's painful, it's a little bit worse than a bee sting, but it's not deadly. So that's because it's not the end yet. Uh, As severe as this judgment on Israel is, there's still time to repent. The chaos and disorder of this demonic reign over the land makes men wish for death, but death eludes them. Well, the kind of death they need is the one that comes from the two-edged sword of the gospel, uh, the two-edged sword of God's word, right? The the mortification of the flesh, that's the death they need. And they need to be resurrected to new life in Jesus. But because they're confused and they're terrorized by these demons, that death eludes them. The damage of these locusts is limited and their days of terror are limited. There's an oddly specific time period. They're allowed to, to, to be on the land for five months. What? Is that a reference to? Why five months? Well, uh, a couple of references and a couple of things that this brings to mind. The waters of the flood uh, uh, prevailed on the earth for five months. It was 150 days, which is five months. Lunar months. Remember, the waters from the flood not only came from the windows of heaven that were open, but the waters of the deep were broken up. Remember, these waters came from the abyss, and it's not till 150 days later that those waters cease, that the gates of the abyss are closed, and for that five months, these waters prevail on the land. Well, uh, so five months is a clear reference to the prevailing judgment of God in the flood. The judgment of God resting on the land as surely as the flood waters rested on the land, and those waters didn't recede until God said so. And so this uh, this judgment comes from the abyss; it comes from the deep, and it rests on the land for five months as well. It's also interesting that five months five months is the length of time from the feast of Pentecost until the day of Atonement. the The uh, festival calendar that God gave Israel is a map of history just as our festival calendar in the church is a map of the life of Christ and the victory of the church so so this narrative in revelation uh takes us through the symbolic symbolism the the symbolic season of worship from pentecost to the day of atonement it it begins the trumpets begin with fire falling from heaven just as they did on pentecost and and it goes to the day of atonement which is uh the 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 day when the high priest takes the blood and he sprinkles it, uh, the blood of the sacrifices, he consecrates the sanctuary, he, he sprinkles blood on the furnishings of the, of the tabernacle. There are washings and pourings and sprinklings. Well, where does this all end? And after the seventh trumpet, uh, the angels take bowls and they perform these cleansings and baptisms and pourings and sprinklings of wrath. So this five-month period could be the period from Pentecost to that final day of atonement, that final day of judgment, that final judgment of Jerusalem. And it's in this period of history from Pentecost to the destruction of the temple that God allows uh, these demons to reside over the land just like the waters of the flood reside over the land. And also uh, the the season of locusts in this part of the world lasts for about five months as well. People would know you've got about just, we have hurricane season. We know when that is. Well, locust season, also you were apt to get it in this five-month window. You might say, well, when is it? What is it? Is it the flood? Is it the calendar? Does it have anything to do with uh, uh, actual locusts? Well, God writes history and he can do multi-layered, multi-textual, complex things. So which is it? All three, it's all of them, and probably more that we don't even know or can't pick up on or understand. Uh, but uh, again, you see five months, what do you think? Where else have we seen five months? What does five months mean? And you dig into it, and you find out, and you learn. Uh, it's, it's likely this phase of history from Pentecost to the end of the old world in 70. Uh, let's, let's pick up, let's read the next three verses. Verse 7, the shape of the locust was like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were crowns of something like gold and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like women's hair and their teeth were like lion's teeth and they had breastplates like breastplates of iron and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running to battle. They had tails like scorpions and there were stings in their tails, their power to hurt. Men was five months. When we studied the book of Song of Solomon last year, it seems like forever ago, but we studied this um, last year, we looked at that ancient poetry form known as the wasif or the blazon, where you describe your beloved feature by feature as Solomon describes uh his beloved uh your hair is like a flock of goats, your neck is like a tower those that's a that's a blazon that's a that's a wasif it's a it's a it's an ancient form of poetry well revelation begins with a blazon of Christ we get a description of Christ feature by feature we also get uh, a description of the angels feature by feature and the cherubim so here we get another blazon, another wasif, but it's it's a it's an ugly one it's a parody or it's a counterfeit. These locust demons are false angels. They're they're composite creatures like the cherubim, but they don't praise, they torment. They have long hair like women, but they're a false bride or or false Nazarites. They have breastplates like the priest, but they don't lead you into fellowship with God. They lead you into the abyss. The swarm and the sound of their wings make up a false glory cloud. This means that the, the 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 dominion of Satan cannot create, he can only imitate, and he can pervert and turn things inside out. Uh, the image here is, a, is an image of an army of ugly creatures that inflict pain pouring out of the pit, led by their captain, who's named in verse 11. And they had his king over them, the angel of the bottomless Pit, whose name in Hebrew is Destruction, but in Greek he has the name Destroyer. Well, Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he has the name Apollyon. It is uh, his name is Destruction. That is his name. That is his job title. The fallen star, the King of the Abyss, is given a name both in Hebrew and Greek. He's not described here as an aggravator or an accuser of the saints. He has another dimension to his mission here destruction. He torments the breakers of the old covenant, even though they're on his plan, even though they're on his side, so to speak, but he doesn't love them. He loves destruction more than anything. And so here he is loose to inflict suffering on them. Now this biblical account stands on its own as a description of what happened during this period of history, but it's also helpful to check in with the historians and say, what did they see? What What did they watch? What did they write down? I keep referring back to the accounts of Josephus, the historian. He was a Jewish historian and he wrote about what was going on in the last days of Jerusalem. He was not a Christian, so he's not trying to make things match up in any kind of way. Uh, but he writes about what he saw and what he heard. And he reports that in the last years of Jerusalem, men had lost all ability to reason. He writes that frenzied mobs were commonly attacking one another, that deluded multitudes would follow after the most transparently false prophets. They would just uh, glom onto whatever they could hold on to, this crazed and desperate chase after meaning and something. There were mass murders, there were executions, There were fathers doing violence to their own family. That's how Josephus describes this period of history. From this account, it's unmistakable that in the middle of the first century, Satan and the host of hell swarmed through the land of Israel and dominated apostate Israel. You can see this insanity begin to emerge in the gospels, in the ministry of Jesus. And then in the early days of the church in Acts, there's this increasing national madness pouring out of the temple, pouring out of the Sanhedrin, pouring out of the the, the learned of Israel. There's zero rationality. Jesus told a parable about an unclean spirit leaving a man and then coming back later and bringing seven more demons with him, more wicked than himself. And Jesus said, so shall it be with this wicked generation. Jesus came and swept out the demons, but they've returned in force in this period of history. Now, Working through this, let's step back and ask for us, what is the meaning? What is the relevance? What is the role of demons in the world and in the narrative of scripture? When you work through the Old Testament, there aren't any demons anywhere, right? There are a few references to Satan in the Old Testament, but there's nothing about his minions. So it seems that demonic presence was held back under the old covenant, as, at least as it pertains to God's people. No doubt pagan worship under the Gentiles and among the Gentiles was under demonic influence to some extent, but they don't show up where God's people are concerned. Priests in Leviticus don't have any rules for what to do with demons or how to cast out demons. Those rules aren't there. That instruction isn't there. Their enemies in the old covenant are flesh and blood. They fought human armies under the command and power of Satan. But Jesus comes on the scene and suddenly demons are everywhere. The demonic host is let loose. And where are they? They're camped out in Israel. And they're found especially at the synagogues and at the temple. Israel is possessed of evil, unclean spirits. They've taken up residence. And the coming of Jesus stirs them up so that they start revealing themselves. They start stepping out of the shadows and they start making themselves known. And when Jesus comes, he demonstrates openly and publicly that they're no match for him. He proves that they're still under his authority. They act under his permission. He tells them where to go and they go, go into those pigs over there. They run mad off the side of a mountain. Jesus is still in command. And so toward the end of the old world, the fifth angel blows his trumpet And Jesus sets loose the demons on apostate Israel in force. And it's about the same time that the Apostle Paul writes this, "'You put on the whole armor of God, "'that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. "'For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, "'but against principalities, against powers, "'against the rulers of the darkness of this age, "'against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places.'" Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. The arena of our warfare now is not against physical armies, but against the demonic powers behind those physical armies. And we have been equipped with the weapons and the armor and all the resources we need to wage that battle and to win, not just to maintain, not just to survive, but to prevail Reading and understanding Revelation shows us that at one time in history, Jesus gave permission to the devils to run loose for a time. Later in Revelation, he binds Satan again with a chain. What this shows us is that from time to time, God may permit Satan a little slack in his chain to judge the nations and to judge the generations and the peoples who act like demons themselves. And he allows them to torment people who embrace all kinds of demonic behavior. You like it so much? Well, here, let's subject your society to demons again for a time and let's see how that goes for you. See if you like that. Now, this might sound sound real worrisome or frightening or maybe even creepy, but it should be immensely encouraging to you. First, Because from the beginning to the end of this description, we learn the vital truth that the power of Satan and his horde is extremely limited, especially as it pertains to those who are in union with Christ. In Joel, the locusts came through and they stripped everything that was green. But these locusts come through, they swarm and devour, and everything is still green because they're forbidden to touch the trees. The saints are spared. And yet their influence is very real on the minds and the hearts of the weak and the fallen. They they don't eat like real locusts, but they do sting like scorpions. If you mess with them, if you engage, if you take up their mission, if you act like them, if you participate in their agenda, if you wear their uniform, if you go around spouting their uh, nonsense, you get stung. And even in this, the purposes of God are being worked out, that, that, that they are never, ever, 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 ever out from under the sovereign plan and command and rule of God. Uh, Martin Luther testified to this in his great hymn, A Mighty Fortress. I think it's the third verse. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him, his rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure, one little word shall fell him. As I said earlier, for Luther, Satan was a very real presence in the world. And Luther recognized his power and his influence. And Luther would rebuke him verbally. Have you ever done that? Have you ever said out loud, get behind me, Satan, rebuke Satan, and he will flee from you, we're told. And Luther wrote that the only way you could deal with Satan, the only way, Luther said, is with short words and cold contempt. I love that, cold contempt. Here's what Luther wrote. One does not gain much ground against the devil with a lengthy disputation, but with brief words and replies, such as, I am a Christian of the same flesh and blood as is my Lord Christ, the Son of God. Settle your account with him. (laughs) That's what he would say to Satan. I'm with Jesus. Settle your account with him. Then, Luther says, the devil does not stay long. Again, that sounds like James 4, 7, right? Resist the devil and he will flee from you. What does Luther say? Don't argue, don't dispute, don't debate, don't toy with temptations, don't let them linger. Resist and rebuke and stop the mouth of the accuser. That's how we deal with him and and, and his power and his influence. This is so relevant and so important to us because we're living in one of those times in history where it seems like, God has given Satan a little slack in his chain and everyone has gone absolutely mad out of their minds. Nothing makes sense. Logic and reason are out the door. People are living on pure emotion and that emotion is fear. It's like a cage has been opened and the demons have been let out for a little while. I'm not the apostle John and I haven't been invited up into heaven to, to get a peek behind the curtain and see if this is in fact what's going on so I could be wrong but it feels certain like, it it, it seems like we are living in days of madness, and I have no doubt about who our enemy is or what his weapons are. And so this gives us an eternal perspective. So when you Christian, when you young person, when you child of God encounter those whose minds have been warped by the devil— remember who you are fighting against and remember what your weapons are don't use their weapons don't use their tactics you're not any good at their tactics and they don't work for you and they have all kinds of defenses against their tactics and against their weapons rather use your weapons use your armor take up courage do not fear fear is their great weapon but they're intimidated by courage Do not think you can reason them out of their madness. They didn't reach their position by reason. You're not going to reason them out of it. You can't argue someone logically at a position that they didn't reach logically. You can't do it. We get so frustrated by their inconsistencies and their mental darkness and their lies, but that's their currency and that's their environment. And and if if you were to take that away from them, everything would collapse everything in the world would collapse. Rather, hear what Ezekiel says. Last thing, listen to what Ezekiel says. I'm I'm sorry, what God says to Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter two, God is commissioning Ezekiel and he says, and you son of man, do not be afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words. Though briars and thorns are with you and you dwell among scorpions, there's that word again. Though you dwell among scorpions, do not be afraid of their words or dismayed by their looks. Though they are a rebellious house, you shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or whether they refuse, for they are rebellious. All you can do is speak uncompromising truth to them. The uncompromising truth of the gospel without wavering, without doubting, without hesitation. God is the creator of the world. He created it in seven days. God's word is true. Jesus reigns as king over everything. Uh, Say those things and give the crystal clear, confident proclamation of the truth, which exposes lies. They can't tolerate it. It exposes their true nature. Tell the truth and then turn to worship the Lord Jesus and express gratitude to him for all things, which is another thing Satan hates, gratitude. But turn to him because Jesus holds the keys of death and hell. And this pit isn't shut up until he's ready. And he's motivated when his bride petitions him. So do not fear the locust. Do not fear the scorpion or even Satan himself. Christ reigns. Christ has the victory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for these truths and we pray that we would grow in our confidence in both you and your word and your son, Jesus. We pray that uh, indeed in him and with him, we would crush Satan's head And do this quickly, Father, if indeed uh, we're living in one of these times, one of these periods of madness, uh, jerk the chain of Satan. Stop his wickedness and his works and put a lid on the demonic horde and bring us back to peace and sanity and safety, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. (laughs)